Welcome to this episode of Unfortunately Required Reading. This week's episode is jokingly titled, Claret Out of Spite. Yeah, uh, it's our one-year anniversary. Yay! So, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. I still can't believe that we've been doing this for a year. Yeah, we've been doing this for like a calendar year. That's bizarre. It really is. Uh, so, in honor of our anniversary, we've decided to uh, take the books that we hate the most. Mm-hmm. So, we're reading the book that I hate the most that isn't a separate piece. Yes. That isn't a separate piece. Uh, reading Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton. And as the title says, what are we drinking? We are drinking Claret out of spite, because in a book I read of Astoria Manners, uh, apparently Edith Wharton, out of all things, hated Claret and hated champagne. So fuck you, Edith Wharton. This is damn good Claret. And that was because she thought it was associated with airheaded hostesses? Was that Yeah, like the... she just she she assumed that it was like a drink that women drank because they thought they were better than they were in real life. But a uh, claret is a Bordeaux style. This is from uh, Becker Vineyards, not yet a sponsor, from Texas. What do you think? I think it's good. I also think we're going to be wine drunk on a Saturday. Woo! That's about as red as I get. Uh, I was going to say, usually you're a much more on the sweet side. This is the sweet one. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is the sweet claret. Uh, you also have made a pretty epic cheese plate. I have made an epic cheese plate. Uh, we have an 1833 uh, vintage cheddar, uh, which is not actually from 1833. That's just when the vineyard, that's when the dairy opened. Because as we discussed, an 1833 cheddar is just uh, mold. <laughs> Tori likes it. She's already dipped into it. Mm-hmm. I'm eating it. It's a good cheddar. It's sharp. I love sharp cheddar. I'm not usually a sharp cheddar person. And the sourdough is perfect. And I got sourdough bread. And uh, we have cornichon. Or uh, what's your pickles? Because we have to because it's Ethan from. Basically, they're just bougie pickles. They're, they're bougie French pickles. <clears throat> it's a petite cornichon. In America, we'd call them gherkins. I like the word gherkin. Okay. I think the word gherkin makes me uncomfortable. Why? People use it as a penis metaphor? Yeah, it's honestly usually because of, like, the innuendo part. Where, like, that's just unattractive to me. Why would you refer to it? Like, they're usually small! That's unfair and rude. I mean. So, I much prefer Cornichon. I'm also very bougie. I'm just a really good combo. I know, almost like I think about it. You do think about it. Amanda goes through and finds, like, tasting notes for everything. I do! That could be, like, a whole other sideshow. It's just, like, me feverishly researching this stuff. Tori gave me a look with, like, a glint. No, I was thinking, like, you could do, like, a mini-podcast of these are the tasting notes. Yeah, I mean, so the tasting notes for this cheddar are sharp. Uh, the crystalline texture is from the denaturing of uh, mostly lactic acid. Proteins. Science. Cheese. I know. I know. It's I mean, it's beautiful. It's so good. It's, a, it's, it's, it's fine. And then there's... I've replaced crackers with bread because one, it's less loud. And oh my gosh, I I like this movement. Yeah, to the bread. Yeah. So, because of our recent moratorium on crackers, where we ended up with three fucking boxes of crackers. Oh, there's there's four. There's another one that's um, on the cabinet. God damn it! So, because of the recent moratorium on crackers, uh, I've moved to bread, and I like sourdough. I don't know why. No, sourdough is amazing. They found, like, this starter from, like, the early 1800s or something from, like, Alaska. I don't know. I, there, Yeah, there's a... I saw that, like, I think on, like, Man vs. Food or something. 
Or like they make pancakes out of that. And I'm like, that's some haunted ass pancake. Oh my gosh, haunted pancakes. That actually sounds wonderful. <laughs> it's also my folk band. Oh god. I also just realized you have another gift in the car that I forgot about. Stop buying presents. I can tell you what this one is though. Okay. So um, I was at Target because of course I was. And they had a sign that says that uh, welcome to our haunted farmhouse and it has a little bat on it. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's obviously Tori and I. This is our haunted farmhouse. Like that's obviously, am I wrong? Did no, I not? You're not wrong. So, also now I feel like, so this has been marking my uh, big conflict for since we got together when we were looking at a house. I'm like, let's get this style. And he's like, no, 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 no. Because that means it's old and it means it's going to be a lot of work to repair it. And I'm like, who cares? He goes, me, because I'll be doing the repairs. And so I said, well, someday I want like an old Victorian manor house or a Victorian farmhouse or some shit like that. And he goes, okay, well, we'll build one because I want it to be new and functional. And I'm like, <sighs> okay. There's actually an amazing reason why we associate haunted houses with Victorian houses. Victorian ghost stories or other stuff? Other stuff. So uh, during like the Gilded Age and on, uh, by that time, a lot of those Victorian manors were starting to become decrepit. So by the time you get to the Great Depression, these houses are already like decades old and falling apart. So when you think about like what the haunted house is, there's a reason why it's a Victorian manor. Because nobody's taking care of it because everybody's dead. Yeah. And everyone's poor because it's the Great Depression. Which we're not in. We're in, apparently we're in the Gilded Age, though we would not know uh, from this horrible, horrible book written by a horrible, horrible old woman. Okay, so we're gonna do the short story long. Uh, this I feel like this is almost like a Watership Down part two, where we spend a great deal of time talking about everything but this fucking book. Uh, you know what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's only fitting for like a year, right? Oh my god, that first episode was so short, and it was. We were talking about like. Marxist rabbits and shit. Anyway, so, this book. Mm -hmm. We're trying to avoid it. An unnamed male narrator is spending his winter in Starkfield, Massachusetts, for business. He keeps seeing a man limping around the village, and the narrator is fixed on him and his carriage. The man limping around is Ethan Frome, who has been in town for pretty much forever. In a typical small-town fashion, people are quick to advise the narrator that Ethan Frome is a, quote, ruin of a man, end quote. The nosy narrator is like, well, I need to figure out what this guy's story is. So he learned, e learned Ethan Frum's limp came from an accident that they all refer to as a smash-up. It occurred 24 years before, but no one really wants to talk about the additional details. The only thing they'll really say is that he, his father had a sudden illness and Ethan had to abandon his higher education to take care of his parents, their farm, and the mill. With this, Ethan's backstory just becomes more interesting to the narrator. For me, it would be less, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah. The narrator hires Frome as a driver for a week, and when a severe snowstorm hits during one of their drives out, Frome has the narrator stay at his house for a night, and Frome begins to tell his story, and that's when we switch to a third-person narrator. Can I just say, I don't understand why this guy is so transfixed on Ethan. No, I mean, it's like, so my mom and I would sometimes see people and be like, I want to know what their story is. Yeah. But usually it was like something way more interesting than this. Yep, I agree. So Ethan is married to Zena. I think that's how you say it. Zena? Zena, there you go. A sick older woman who helped him take care of his parents. He has gone to the church dance to pick up his cousin, Maddie Silver. It's pretty obvious Ethan has major feelings for his cousin, which is not lost on anyone, including his own wife. 
When he walks by the graveyard, he pictures being buried there with Maddie, but not Zena. Because that's what you do. Zena bails out to go to a doctor visit in another city, and she asks Ethan to come with her. He lies and tells her that he has to collect some money, but really he just wants to stay behind so he can play house with Maddie. Things are going really well until the cat breaks Zena's prized pickle dish, one she has never taken out of the cupboard because she's boozy as fuck. Ethan decides he will get glue and fix it before hiding it so that Zena never finds out. I mean, we all know how that works out. Yeah, that works out great. He spends his whole day trying to go home and spend more time with Maddie, but he keeps getting held up. When he gets home, hoping for more time with Maddie, he discovers that Zena has come home early and discovered the broken dish. She tells Ethan that they have to send Maddie away because Zena needs a full-time maid, not his cousin. The doctor has advised that she is too sick to do housework herself. Ethan is pissed because he doesn't want Maddie to leave. The girl has done nothing, and he's clearly in love with her. He also doesn't have the funds for a full-time housekeeper. Zena tells Ethan to take Maddie away and pick up the new girl at the train station and that she's already set everything up, you know, without talking to her husband about it. Of course. Tormented, Ethan and Maddie drive away on the sledge, determined to spend more time together before Maddie goes away. Maddie suggests a suicide pact. Ethan agrees, but as he speeds up the sledge to kill them both with a tree, he swears he sees his wife's face. They both hit the elm tree. Maddie ends up paralyzed and living with the Frums full time for the rest of her life. Ethan ends up with a limp, and Zena ends up as the gentle caretaker, reversing her and Maddie's roles. I hate everything about this. But also, like, I know how sleds work. Like, you'd have to really ram that thing. Also, Maddie didn't even sleep with him or do shit. Right. Like, what is... It's so... It's so dumb. So dumb. It's so dumb and so convoluted. And, like, it... The reason we're eating cheddar is because it's a salty and white, like this book. <laughs> it's not wrong. That's it. Don't day us day lie. Don't us. <laughs> like, where is lie? Like, it's salty and white. Like, there's no... Just sleep with her. Like, if you're gonna... Because, like, it's, it's cousin by marriage. Like, it's not like a weird, like, incest thing. It wouldn't be crazy if he left his wife. Like... I don't know. It must be all the black in me, but, like, white people problems in books like this just piss me off. Because, like, you don't have a problem. Well, what really bothers me, too, is, like, Xena has done so much work to take care of this piece of crap, dude. Mm-hmm. Like, and she's got a chronic illness. And I'm like, well, we don't know if she has a chronic illness. Oh, yeah, that's right. Even, uh, that gets taken away thanks to Edith Wharton. You really don't, like... So I take this out in the book. You take this out on Edith Wharton. I, think I do take this out on Edith Wharton. I think that's fascinating because I think really until having to do research for this episode, I didn't care about her. So I just took this out on the book. You're mad at old Aunt Edith. Well, I read a lot about old Aunt Edith and I don't like her. I mean, same. I just, I, 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 I didn't care and I still don't care. I'm going to get haunted by Edith Wharton. I, I wish you fucking would. I have this Gilded Age bitch walking around my house in like an outfit all of the uh, start of Ghostbusters from 1984. I love that you have to clarify. I do clarify. All right, there's a lot of themes. There's not really that many themes. Okay, there are like there's like four, four themes. themes. <laughs> there's really, well, I mean, technically winter is a theme, and I don't want this to turn into Frozen. Because <laughs> you know I'll start singing this song. I know. What is Frozen Two about? Um, what is the point? 
I don't know because the official plot hasn't been released in traditional Disney just, fashion. It just, but it looks like Arendelle is under attack by magic. And so she has to go find the roots of her magic, which is all Norwegian shit. And I'm super excited about it because I'm a 30, almost 35 year old woman who really loves Frozen and loves um, Norwegian and Finnish and Danish mythology. Okay. Let me have this, Amanda. I did. Where did I try to take it from you? I, like, I made a promise after Anastasia. I tried not to look for historical inaccuracies anymore. I can't help it. It just happens. Okay, but Anastasia is really not the one to do it with. <laughs> That's really. <laughs> that movie is just Don Bluth hates children. <laughs> Don Bluth does hate children. He does. He's mad that his video game never did well. He hates children. Is this back to your Donde Estelle lie? Where? Where? <laughs> Don Bluth hates kids. He's still alive. You might hear this. I don't know. Sorry, Don Bluth. I mean, I'm sure he's a lovely person. Every interview he's done, he's a great person. But he clearly hates that he had to be Disney because he never wanted to be. I love this so much, this cheese and bread sensation. It's like a sandwich, but it's like a mini sandwich. Every time I watch her eat this, it feels like that part of Ratatouille. Where like Remy's doing the taste, yes. Like, it's the strawberry and the cheese. Like it feels oh, like, yeah, it feels like that every time. I am Remy. It's a problem. Do I get to be Patton Oswalt now? No, wait, maybe not. Is he problematic? No, he's a really cool guy. Um, but he had a lot. I of love the best stuff. I love that. That's the question. Is he problematic? No. Okay. Well, only self-confessing. His stand-up is really funny. Anyway, uh, so. Punishment for Untamed Passions. Uh, that's kind of a thing in narratives that when you go against the social order, you get punished. So, like, having an affair would be bad. And I get it. Affairs are bad. But making it, like, the crux of your book seems silly to me. But, uh, I mean, both parties do get punished. Ethan with that limp, that is a giant impotence metaphor. And we were talking about this, too, because one of the other themes is, like, men's pain. Man flu. Man flu. Like, yeah. Poor Maddie is, like, paralyzed for life. Right. And basically has to live with this lady who hates her. And yeah. Ethan gets off with a limp. Mm -hmm. And, like, he's no poor bit of Ethan. He can't do stuff anymore. Yeah. Like, that's... And... And also, we were talking about this, too, a little bit, the hysteria of women. Yes. Xena's pain is never acknowledged. No. And Wharton seems really to, like, enjoy assuming that this is something that's psychological. And, like, hysteria and women is a very complicated topic that really could be a whole other podcast. Mm -hmm. But this idea that if, like, a woman is suffering, it's probably in her head. And that's so frustrating in the story is that, you know... Zena at the very end is basically made to be this like little savior who takes care of everybody and overcame her pain, which evidently never existed and was only in her head right. to take care of the people who wronged her. And I'm going, yeah, oh. ju justice for Zena. Cause like she's really framed terribly in this book and she didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Like she gets described basically as this old, bitter, gross woman. And you're going, well, she's had to deal with your ass, Ethan. Like, right, like, it's... She took care of your family who was dying. That's really hard to do. She's basically your free hospice nurse, you dick. Right, like, it's just... It's so gross. 
even like assuming that her opinion isn't real. Because, like, I mean, you have two biologically female hosts here who, without going into too much detail, both have chronic conditions. Hooray! And we've both talked about not having our pain believed. Mm-hmm. Oh, especially if you are of the plus size. Yeah. Um, and you go into a doctor's office, <clears throat> the very first thing is lose weight. And you're like, yeah. okay, well, that's cool, but this has to do with this instead. And they're like, mm, maybe. And then I'm double screwed because I'm plus size and black. Mm-hmm. So I'm just not listened to. Oh, you're fucked. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think John Oliver calls it the fuck barrel. We're just like a barrel of just everything terrible. Yeah, like it's it's awful. I mean, even the even just still calling a, a removal of a uterus a hysterectomy upsets me. Well, what's interesting too is like Ethan, you know, as he gets away with so much stuff, and I love, love, loved in Thug Notes, he was talking about it's the Ethan shit orbit. Like yes. everybody who's around him gets screwed. I mean, even the narrator gets stuck with him overnight. But I think, like, that's the problem with so many books like this, is that, so I did a panel about the Mary Sue. Mm-hmm. And here's the problem with, like, criticizing the Mary Sue trope, is that when this happens to men, no one says anything. When this happens to men, no one no one cares. But, like, what about Ethan is so fascinating? What about Ethan is so uh, captivating that you would be in Bumshart, Nebrahoma, and you see this dude hobble across a field like I must know everything about him nothing nothing about this white bread motherfucker is so enrapturing he's not a, he's not a fucking cryptid he's not Bigfoot he's not anything special he's just some fucking white dude he could be any of my exes so we drive by my kid's mom's house all the time I'm the stepmom just in case you guys were wondering oh or hadn't heard that before stop. But there is this lady who has this, like, rock garden outside of her house, and it is definitely an HOA violation, which makes me laugh every time. And so we're like, I look at her mom, and I go, we have to go with Brianna to ring this doorbell and ask for candy, because holy moly, I need to know this lady's story. We get up to the front, the house is covered in papers, there's just trash everywhere, and I go, oh no. Like, in my head, I'm like, this woman is basically a shut-in and needs some help. Or is dead. We get there, we ring the doorbell, and she's like, I'm so sorry, I've been so sick, I haven't been able to go out and get candy, but you guys look amazing, and we're like, it's no problem, it's no issue, you're amazing, have a great holiday, we'll sit, talk to you another time, and we, like, walk away, and I'm just like, well, now I feel like a shitlord. Well, but also, like, I would also be curious about that woman's story, but, like, there's nothing about Ethan that is like, I must know more about this uh, pale piece of milk toast. <laughs> He's not even sourdough. No, he's not. This uh, this uncrustable. He's an uncrustable. This this human uncrustable. But he's just like an uncrustable that's only filled with peanut butter. There's like no jam to balance it out. No, he's like a dollar store uncrustable, like the off brand. For those who don't know what an uncrustable is, because (laughs) do we have to explain what an uncrustable um, is? Uh, just for listeners in the UK who might not have them. I mean, you might. I don't know. Americans it's like a toasty. Stuff. It's, yeah, it's very similar to, like, a pasty, except that it's made out of white bread, and it's in the frozen section at the grocery store. Like, you press it down, and it's like a little, like, pocket sandwich. And it's supposed to be designed for kids who want, like, basically a compact peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But with all, no crust. But with no crust. 
Because the crust is the worst part of bread. Because in the United States, we actually make bread at our local grocery store, H-E-B, that has no crust. Yeah. At all. And it blows my mind. I'm sensing some judgment here. There's a little bit of judgment. We, we buy it for the kid. Yeah, I like uncrusted bread. Like, if, if it's like sandwich bread like that, I like uncrusted bread. Now, I'm willing to hang with sourdough like, if it's very high quality. But, like, you could not pay me to eat, like, the crust of, like, Mrs. Baird's. I love crust. You're the whitest person I've ever met. Yeah, I'm also a crusty bitch, so that's part of it. <laughs> but you are the whitest person I've ever met. But, like, this piece of unflavored milk toast just, hob- just hobbling around a field. What, is- what about him is so curious? What about him is so fucking special? Nothing. The answer is nothing. Outside of we have to make some plot shit happen. So... I love the random symbols in this book. And we're going to have a whole conversation with the Scarlet Letter. Basically, it's probably going to be like 40 symbols and you're all going to hate me. Oh, we need to talk about uh, women being dangerous. Oh, yeah. Evidently, you know, if you're just cleaning a house and being completely innocent and not doing anything, you're seductive as fuck. Right. And, like, that's something that bothers me. Uh, I think we... What book were we talking about? We were talking about, like, covering one's hair. Was it one of the Toni Morrison ones? I think it was one. I think it was a Toni Morrison. Yes. Was, oh wait, was, wait, wait, wait. We didn't do the color purple. We Sula. did. Was Sula? Sula. Or like this idea of like, oh well, Maddie just by being there, of course, Ethan would be seduced. It's like her existing is not validation for this old man to be gross. What's really hard too is like if, in the book they talk about Maddie's background. She's lost everybody. There's no money. There's nothing left. Right. I mean, she probably wasn't like, I'm going to go hang out with Uncle Ethan and seduce him. I mean, it's not her uncle. It's her cousin. But yeah. Well, but even if she did have any agency in that scenario, which, like, Edith Warden's not a good enough writer for us to know. She, I'm just going to say that. We don't know what Maddie's agency is. Because, like, maybe she was maybe she was fine by getting dicked down by this milk toast. And, like, that's fine. They're two consenting adults at that point. And it's like, He's so excited when she turns down this other guy at the church dance. It's a church dance. That's never stopped anyone. I mean, for real, though. Like, That's have, never... have you been? You've been to one. You've known Catholic schools and stuff. I the whole been. leave space for Jesus. That's never stopped anyone. That's never stopped anyone. Nuns can't go into the bathroom and follow you. It's almost like abstinence-only education doesn't work. I mean, yeah, it doesn't. But, uh, yeah, like, it's just it's so frustrating because... It puts all this onus on Maddie for being like, oh, she's so hot. Look at her. She shouldn't be flaunt, like flaunting around like that. It's like, she didn't fucking do anything. She gets crap for wearing a scarf. Oh, God damn. It is cold. It is winter. She'd get crap if she left her neck open. I mean, realistically, at this stage, like, she's the uh, Trojan shit horse at this point. I mean, it's like she wasn't trying to femme fatale the shit. She didn't, like, show up in, like, four-inch heels and, like... Also, those didn't exist. Yeah, that's true. Also, this. Um, it wasn't like, that also hey, big did. boy, run, ride in a sledge with me. Like, no. Like, that also, that was also horribly anachronistic. True. It went full Django Unchained for a minute. Which is a movie you still haven't seen. Nope. What? You can't make the reference until you see it. I'm gonna put, um, there's, bam. There's a bam. There is. You have to see it. You're like, Mark, we need to, we need to watch this movie. Yeah, you have to. There's no excuse. You I mean... To- we do the line all the time that you had my you uh, had my my interest, interest now you I got my, my attention curi- my curiosity or whatever my you had attention. my curiosity now you got my attention yeah. yeah 
Sorry, I just butchered that because I've never seen it. Don't worry, DiCaprio eats that scene like with a fork and knife. Dica- like the, I feel bad watching Django Unchained because it is not Jamie Foxx's movie. That is a power play between Christoph Waltz and Leonardo DiCaprio for who can eat the most scenery. Like Willem Dafoe level of like knife and fork eating scenery. Wow. Oof. Willem Dafoe is, um, oh shit, what is that movie? He is the entire Boondock Saints movie. I was thinking Spider-Man. Fair. <laughs> also fair. I was thinking Spider-Man. I, I kind of wanted to see The Lighthouse just because he's in it. Okay. I want to see him, like, basically devour Robert Pattinson. Also, uh, American Psycho. He's the American Psycho. He's the detective, isn't he? Wow, it's been so long since I think I've he seen is. that movie. I just remember the whole Patrick Bateman scenes and the cards and stuff. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's the guy who's trying to catch the killer. Can you see how much we hate this book, you guys? I'm telling you, this is Watership Down Part 2. Or how can we avoid talking about this book? I have to Google who Willem Dafoe was now. Okay. So, so while you're doing that, let's I'm talk about I'm going to go scars. into some symbols. <clears throat> so Maddie is wearing a scarf. Um, Amanda's put wonderful notes in that it's likely a beauty symbol. It Stunning, is. flowing, youthful, fragile. And then we have the carriage, which is a penis metaphor. Everything's a penis metaphor. I was right. Crashing into a wall and suddenly no longer being able to perform with your lovely... Yes. Penis Uh, metaphor. Yeah. Uh, It's like what people do with cars. It's a a car thing that is like, here's my uh, second uh, shiny phallus. He was the detective in that. I need to go rewatch it. I was right. Uh, so, of course, you know, he wrecks his carriage, which means he wrecked his dick, I guess. I don't know. I love, love, love that the pickle dish is a symbol about it breaking and all that. Because Zena's like, I kept this in a cabinet where nobody could reach it and nobody could touch it. And it's mine. And it's a symbol of the home and wealth, but it's also fragile. Because she even was saying that, like, she only would take it out for certain entertaining events. Mm-hmm. Not all entertaining events, because not everyone deserves the pickle dish. Do we ever know about Zenobia? Because that sounds very Southern. I mean, they're in Massachusetts. That doesn't mean that she can't be from the South. That's fair, because she did travel to be with him. <laughs> this this sounds... Suddenly, I see Amanda in this. I, I love the idea, like, well, it's in Massachusetts. Cool. She had to be from there. We were joking around that uh, we needed to get a pickle dish to dish. break. Do you like some more claret? I'll take a little bit more. Rage claret. Thank you, dear. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. You have to drive home at some point. Oh, I mean, I've made it every other time. <laughs> Pasta and nachos are an important sponsor of this podcast. Not yet a sponsor. Not yet a sponsor. We pay for them. We uh, sponsor them ourselves. A peek behind the curtain. Uh, despite... What this does for our audio. There is a reason why we have cheese and crackers and bread. Mm-hmm. It's to talk about the alcohol. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know if you've heard earlier episodes where we didn't have this in front of us. If you ever want to hear as lush as we possibly get, I think it was the Beowulf episode. Beowulf or... What was the first episode we drank port for? Uh, was that Jane Eyre? I think it was Jane Eyre. Whatever first got us to drink port and then Beowulf, I think is us at our most just like incoherent lush. And the funny thing is then for Grendel, we were mostly sober because we hated what we were drinking. It was spicy and it was bad. 
weird. It was weird. I mean, I'm sure somebody out there loves it, but it was just like, mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, every alcohol has its own thing. I didn't know that there was an artichoke aperitif until you, so, or digest, sorry. It's fine. Sinar. Sinar. Oh, if we have any listeners in Chicago, I would love if you sent us some Malort. What pray tell is Malort? Malort is a Swedish liqueur made from wormwood. This sounds painful. Oh, it's listed as one of the most disgusting things ever. But you can only get it in Chicago. Is this like my family going, this is gross, smell this? Yeah. Okay. And if I suffer, I make you suffer with me. I mean, I did make you eat blood candy for Dracula. It really wasn't that bad. No, it's just mostly a sweetened condensed milk. I, I'm just going to have to make you find the next episode. I'm so excited. Uh, so. No, we can't because we're Puritans next episode. I'm black and it's the 1600s, so either I'm a witch or I'm still in a hut. What's up, Tituba? Hell yeah! Oh, and now it's <laughs> racist and gross. Sorry. It's okay. That wasn't your fault. It's the thing of Hawthorne's fault. Uh, Hawthorne. There's going to be so much swearing about Hawthorne next I episode. I also love that you left in my note where I said the Scarlet Letter written by Nathaniel the Asshole Hawthorne. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> you left that in? Nathaniel, I don't want you to write any more Jane Austen Hawthorne. Anyway, I don't even like Jane Austen. That's, and then I lost like twelve listeners. Anyway, I also don't like her. <laughs> now I've lost twenty four. Uh, but yeah, like the pickle dish is weird because that one sounds very southern, like this idea of like bringing the dishes into the marriage, but they're fragile because like I know like we had plates that we didn't eat off of unless we had company. Like we had like an entire like china cabinet full of things like we didn't touch. Hi, neighbor's dog. I know you're really upset about something. Can I bring you some cheese? I don't think that's good for dogs. Oh. I mean, it might be fine for dogs, but, like, I feel like this, one, this cheese is good and expensive, so let's not give this cheese to dogs. Oh, I'm eating this cheese. Okay. Let's, dogs can have a slightly cheaper cheese. Okay. Okay. Uh, Moving on to name symbolism. Yeah, name symbolism, uh, which is actually something that, fun fact, I love. Uh, Zenobia gets her name from a once great Syrian princess, uh, almost like it's a fucking metaphor. Because she's mostly weak and ineffectual and complains. So, almost like I have to give Edith Ward a half point for thinking that she's being clever. Wait till we talk about the next book. Anyway, body uh, silver. Yeah, silver is a precious metal, but it is less precious and way more malleable than gold. It's almost like she's in the part of her life where she's the most malleable. Almost like she's also pretty fucking valuable when she gets flung into a tree at terminal velocity. Oh, no. That neck ain't malleable. Also, I I, I stopped using the word terminal velocity because of Fifty Shades of Grey. I hate that book. So, I know you've read some of it because I I hate it so much. But, um, like, everything, everything that happens in that book is at terminal velocity. Anastasia runs to him at terminal velocity. Christian runs to her at terminal velocity. You keep using the word terminal velocity. I don't think you know what the fuck that word means. This word does not mean what you think it means. So the only time terminal velocity did happen was uh, Charlie Tango fell. That's Ethan's helicopter. Ethan, sorry. Uh, Christian's helicopter. I don't. I just got really confused. Char- I yeah. was like, Ethan's helicopter, Sorry. Ethan's sledge. It's all no. comes full circle. Sorry, Christian. Claire it. Uh, but yeah, Charlie, Charlie Tango is the helicopter. <laughs> it's a great- I think it's the Russian in me that's really enjoying these pickles. I mean, they're good French pickles. 
They're amazing. I love cornichon. I want to read Russian literature just so I can make you eat herring under a fur coat, but I think that's wrong. Yeah, that is wrong. It will make you blini. I do like those a lot. Pancakes. Or we could do some... Is there Romanian literature that we can grab? Mm, probably. <laughs> no, anyway. Roma- Romanians have never written anything. I'm sure they've written a lot. I mean, I, that was a And joke. then hid it away from communism. Anyway, so we have questions from listeners. We like when you guys send us questions. Are we not talking about flashbacks? I don't want to talk about flashbacks. Okay, so this book is written in an extended flashback. It's called a framing device, if you're one of our five listeners who's still in school. Um, it's very similar to something you'll see in, like, Wuthering Heights, where... The strange traveler comes yeah. into the home and then they tell him the whole story of why everything is messed up. Didn't that also, like, Loki happen in Dracula? Yeah. Okay. And a little bit in Frankenstein. Yeah. Yay! I remember the books we read while I was drunk. Look at your framing conventions. I love this. Ugh. And this is why I rent a lot of books from the library. Yes, I rent them. I don't check them out. <laughs> Um, I think claret's a bad idea. Yeah, I think claret's dangerous. Do I need to tell you what is in this claret? Probably. So grapes. Well, yeah. We have, well, no, the the type of grape. Oh. I was going to say, I would hope there would be grapes in wine, but then again. Soft pet. You can't make wine technically out of any fruit. That's true. You can also make toilet wine in prison. Pruno? Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyways. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, 40%. Merlot, 35%. Petit Verdot, 12%. Malbec, yeah, Malbec, 8%. Cabernet Franc, 5%. Alcohol, 13.5% by volume. Well, this explains a lot. <laughs> I love when you get that, like, high-pitched, <laughs> like... Almost like I used to voice act. I'm going to keep you, and then I'm going to have you go around parties and just be like, <laughs> That's really problematic because you're white oh, and you said right. that you want to keep me. I don't mean it like that. I don't mean it like that. I don't even lock the front door for you anymore because I don't want you to think that we're trying to, like, trap you, like, get out or some shit. I mean, I've learned. It's been a year. I've learned. Uh, So I usually automatically lock the front door because I'm from California and people like to walk to your door, open it, and come in and destroy things. So... Fucking who? Richard Chase. No, that's canceled. Okay. Um, Sorry, that's a, a killer who was, like, the vampire killer in San Francisco. Um, I was, Wait, you had your own Rod Farrell? Pretty much. I Damn. was born shortly after the Night Stalker was a thing, so my mom had a loaded shotgun in the house that I didn't know about until I was much, much older, and my mom's like, oh yeah, your dad's shotgun was ours, because he would be away on business trips, and I didn't want the Night Stalker to break into the house and kill me. We just had a password that we kept as a family. We had that too. Which I will never tell anyone else. Uh, so the flashback thing is weird. Uh, but it exists. I don't think it's, like, the first example, but it's a notable example. And by notable, I mean, fuck you, Edith Wharton. Edith Wharton hurts me. And I, 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 I'm pretty sure she's I dead. I told Amanda that I spent so much time trying to find something that I liked about Edith Wharton, and I couldn't, and it, like, disturbed me a little bit. But why? Why do you need her approval? She's dead. I know she's dead, but... I remember all these people in, like, college being like, oh, Edith Wharton is magic. I love her books. Are all those people, like, white and racist? They're white. That's kind of a point. Okay, here we go. So, fun fact. I actually did ask for questions from our listeners, and uh, we got very few back, mostly because I think everyone hates this book. I I think that's fair. 
But we did get one from Twitter stating, not a specific question, but I'm generally interested in how Wharton explores social class in her books. I've read three of them, and now I genuinely can't tell what her personal stance on class mobility is. Haven't read Ethan Frome. I wish I had neither. Uh, though this will be interesting. This is from our Twitter, as mentioned. So, hmm. So, we're going to dip a little bit into Wharton's history yes. for a second. Wharton was rich. She was rich as fuck. And, like, she was a socialite known for her parties and everything like that. Like, she was rich and famous and basically wrote because she was bored. And she ended up dying in France in her, like, lovely home. Yeah. Um, and apparently, class is always, is like a common theme for her. Here's how I feel about it. I think it's always inherently a little condescending when a writer who is rich writes about the air quotes poor. Well, what's interesting too, <laughs> and I brought this up if you've listened to our before show, um, there was a critic who said that he was from Europe and he thought it was very strange that Ethan Frome wasn't able to afford to leave his marriage. Right. And he thought that that was very strange that Americans didn't have the ability to get out of those kind of situations because of funding. Right, and that's still a problem that we have even now in 2019. I mean, that's kind of one of the most cited things in cases of domestic violence is why the woman doesn't leave. It's because she has doesn't have the funds to take her family out. Right. Um, Which is horrifying, but... I mean, there's a lot about living in America that is horrifying. That's fair. But uh, as far as class goes, especially because... So she's writing during what's known as the Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. This is like right before uh, the Roaring Twenties, but it led up to a lot of the wealth that existed in the Roaring Twenties. So that money that people keep playing with during those Gatsby parties started in this era. So this is old, old, old money. As far as how she approaches wealth in class, yeah, it always does seem a little poor, unfortunate souls kind of thing. But, like, nothing actually done to help anyone. Like, it's this weird voyeuristic, oh, look at what the poors are doing. And I don't like that. And you do see a lot of that in class <clears throat> literature of the time frame, too, where it's, you know, this wealthy person and they're kind of like, oh, I have walked among the slums. I have taken the subway of New York. I have gone through and seen vomit in the gutterways. And you're going, cool. Did you give that guy a 20 or did you like go help with the soup kitchen or like, what did you do about it? And not even like you have, because like, I ha so I have that issue when people talk about like rent. We're like, oh, it's just like fetishizing like. Uh, people looking at poverty, it's like, okay, I get it, but, like, not everyone can be a saint. Calm down. Like, calm down, because, like, as much as I love Lindsay Ellis, her really going into that part of it kind of pissed me off, because it's like, yeah, I get it, everyone knows that Mark is an asshole, shut up. Like, we all, we all know. No, no one is shocked. Stop laying into this one part, there's other aspects of Rent that are problematic and terrible. <laughs> like, this isn't the one, honey, but, yeah, I mean... I'm keeping my mouth shut because I've never seen Rent. I just know the song out tonight by heart because I had to perform it at karaoke. How? Where did you live? Southern California. How? Basically, you were too worried if, about whether or not you had to have plastic surgery. But Rent is, I'm not going to say it's good. It might be like one of the more mainstream versions of bisexuality I've ever seen. I mean, 
They did a Menzel. It's not fair that she gets multiple power ballads. I'm just saying, most careers you get one. That's Whitney, true. Whitney Houston. Let's say, like, mm, Aretha Franklin. Technically, Whitney Houston took it from Dolly Parton, but she made it her own. It's also not a pissing contest between a powerful woman. No, it's not. This is not America's next victim. America's next <laughs> victim of the TV show that we're starting. Yeah. Right. But, uh, I mean, unfortunately, neither of us have read enough Wharton to care or to know. And this doesn't really make me want to go out and read The House of Mirth. No. Or Age of Innocence. No. Or, what is it, Sun from the Battlefield. I don't know. Whatever. Somebody's screaming in the background right now. I love Edith Wharton, you horrible whore. And I'm like, okay. Vague white people problems, volume one. <laughs> Listen, I've got a lot of vague white people problems. But, uh, and actually that brings up something we talked about during the pre-show. Was, uh, when I was on Twitter, someone had said that about Wharton's work. But it's like, I really hate that this is the book that makes people hate Edith Wharton. And I'm like, I do too. Not enough to read any more of her work. You were talking too about high school. Like you read this when you were what, a freshman? Yeah. 14. And that just kind of informed your whole opinion on Wharton from the time moving forward. Yeah. She was a stuck up prissy pants and I hated her. I mean, to be fair, there are quite a few authors that we read in high school that I went, Oh God, don't ever want to read anything by them again. Hemingway. I actually really liked Hemingway in high school. No, as um, but there's there's that, and then there's like sneaking through the rest of my literature textbook where I found Dorothy Parker, who I adore, but we you never would. talked about. Oh, she's she's depressed. She's from New York. She's got a million little commentaries about feminism. I also just realized that there's a book that I think we're going to have to cover. Flowers for Algernon. Oh. I have somebody who's actually asked that we do that too. So, Ooh. yeah. So let's talk about uh, this pasty old white lady. Edith Wharton was born Edith Newbold Jones, January twenty fourth, eighteen sixty two, to the literal Joneses. Like for real, this is the family that spawned the phrase "keeping up with the Joneses." So, if you want to understand, like, why we don't like her, there it is. Um. She was also referred to by her nickname, Pussy Jones, which is now my burlesque name. Fair. Um, I like to write my own jokes. That's a problem. It's not the, it's not the worst. Her relations, the Rensselaers, her mother's family, were part of the Dutch government land grants to New York, New Jersey, making them long-standing patroons. Not patroons. Er, yeah, patroons. Patrons? I don't know. <clears throat> anyway. Uh, not poultry, and there you go. She was born during the American Civil War, but they were away in Europe because of the depreciation of American currency. Or all the fucking slavery. I don't know. Combination. She became very fluent in French, German, and Italian. For those of you who don't know what a patron is, I really, really want you to go watch the movie Dragonwick. Uh, It's got Vincent Price in it and Gene Journey. Basically, you would have this land and you had people work it for you like serfs, and then they would have to pay you a portion of what they earned. And so usually if you were the patron, you had a ton of money and you were fancy and lived in your house on the hill and looked down upon the workers. <laughs> I don't like any of that. Okay. Wharton uh, became fluent in French, German, and Italian. Mm-hmm. French by the age of four. She was later, uh, somebody referred to her French as basic perfection, like they didn't think that she had ever lived in America, which made me hate her even more. Um Wharton got typhoid fever when she was nine and nearly died in the Black Forest of Germany at a health spa. 
Her family then returned to the U.S. and spent winters in New York and summers in Newport, Rhode Island. Yes. Ethan Fromm is based off of a real incident that happened in Lenox, Massachusetts in 1904. Four girls and one boy were in a sledding accident and one girl died. And then Edith Wharton became friends with Kate Spencer, one of the girls who was injured in the accident, which is like kind of uncomfortable. Kind of? Um, She started the novella as an exercise to practice her writing in French while living in France. And then she came back to it and turned it into a novel. She would read it daily to her friend, Walter Berry. Walter Berry was the one who told her not to publish certain books. I think it was Age of Innocence. He told her not to publish. And everyone was like, what are you talking about? This is a bestseller. Um, I like to wonder why Walter didn't stop her. (laughs) I mean, he tried, I guess. Not hard enough. Wharton didn't like the fashion of her age and called the dresses oppressive. She read books from her father's library and those from her father's friends. The one caveat was from her mother who told her she was not allowed to read novels until she was married, which she complied with. They actually started her season, like her coming out season, a year early because she was reading so often that it made her mother and father uncomfortable. Thanks, PBS. Um, Sure. In addition to writing novels, she wrote about gardening, entertaining, and was a major figure in decorating for her time. She actually wrote one of the first books on interior decorating, and she's credited with creating the profession of interior design, at least if you're talking to Bob Vila. Yeah, I've seen the inside of her house. Uh, yes, the Mount in Massachusetts. Yeah. Wait, so you've been in it? No. Oh, you just saw the pictures? Ma'am, if I've been there, I wouldn't bury the lead. It's a museum you can tour. It's ridiculous. They've had famous French designers come in and do things. Um, what kind of things? Like redo the home. And just, just she's there. got a table, or there is a table in her library that is from uh, Princess Margaret's son, which I can't remember his name, but he has been doing furniture for years. And it's like this glass table that kind of looks like you'd get it from on sale someplace. But I'm not a furniture critic, so I'll give my mouth shut. We use an old library desk, okay? I mean, it's, it's a start. So she lived in France for the end of her life and was active during the First World War, touring the front, basically because she said, I'm just a sweet little old woman, what am I going to do? And they're like, yeah, that's a fair point. Mm-hmm. Um, she was tasked by her friends to create a sewing room to create bandages for soldiers And so she went out and earned a bunch of money from her friends who were the wealthy expatriates from the U.S. and got someone to donate a super nice apartment for them to sew in. Oh, how lovely. Like, okay. That almost makes it sound like she wasn't a terrible person. She's also very anti-Semitic. Very anti-Semitic. I'm not a fan of. (laughs) Controversial stances here on the pod. Controversial stances. I like Jewish people. I don't know. I mean, it may have to do with the fact that I have Ashkenazi blood, but that's another story entirely. I mean, realistically, you're just not an asshole. Like, there's no... We'll go with that. Realistically, I'm not an asshole. Well, so... I know some people who would disagree. So, slight caveat to that, and this is probably influenced by, like, my experience as a black person. That whole idea of, like, I'm not a racist because of this reason. Sure. Whatever. But, like, realistically, you're not a racist because you're not an asshole. It doesn't matter. Like, you shouldn't have to have that as a reason to not, you know, hate people. Yeah, I I joke all the time that I kind of live by the Avenue Q principle of everyone's a little bit racist. Um, But at the same time, 
you have to actually meet and talk to people of a particular race and culture and ethnicity, the whole thing, before you really have any concept of who they are. And it drives me crazy, like, oh, so-and-so is clearly evil. It's like, um, are you sure? Are I you sure? Because I think that's what you've been for- informed of by your country's idea of patriotism. Yeah, I think that's why I love and hate that part of Avenue Q. Is like, I think everyone has their own prejudices, sure, but like giving a pass to racism like that, I think is really, really dangerous. Oh no, we don't. We do not give a pass. No, you don't get a pass. It's not a hall pass. You don't no. get like a special thing from the hall monitor saying you can dislike these people specifically. Yeah, like it's. I mean, like we all have our prejudices, and like. That's human nature, but... And, I mean, there are some evil, horrible human beings. Like, that's never been, like, a race thing. Like, it's never been, like, this person is evil because they're black or evil because they're evil. That's kind of the thing I have with religion, too, is I have to explain to people, it is the crazy people who are the loudest in each religion. That's the problem. You can meet somebody who's incredibly wonderful and follows a particular religion, but there's always going to be that, like, 4% who, like, bomb abortion clinics and shit, and you have to be, like... We're not sitting with them. Yeah. Like, come come sit at our table. We love you. Like, you're not... Don't... I don't know. Do you want to talk about resources? Oh my gosh, so many resources. Um, Sparknotes. All hail. Thank you, Sparknotes. Thank you. Wikipedia, thank you for helping me with some of this. I mm-hmm. was not... I, I'd watched something and I wanted to verify a piece of information. Yep. Thug notes. Sir, I salute you. With your Ethan from shit orbit. That was pure brilliance. And accurate. And accurate. Uh, PBS has a special on Edith Wharton. You can watch on YouTube. I'll link in our show notes. Mm-hmm. Edith Wharton. The Sense of Harmony. It's a film that's on um, Apple. Not Apple. Hmm, Amazon Prime. Apple Prime. Apple Prime. New Monopoly. <laughs> All the Primes. Um, evidently in 1993, there was a Liam Neeson movie of Ethan There Brown. was. I did not put myself through that because I didn't want to hurt myself. It is as dry and boring as you think it is. I really now want to change it to be like that wolf movie that he, he was in, Liam Neeson. I know which one you're talking about. Oh, like Into the Gray or whatever. Yeah, whatever. Some, and I want to take that and I want to combine it also with Taken. <laughs> I, yeah, that, that is about as dry and as boring as you can imagine. I'm kind of excited about it now. No, you're not. I have a movie to pitch, Hollywood. Call me. Oh, God. Well, I mean, I kind of know the answer to this, but did you have to read this in school? Yes, and fuck you, Miss Peach, for making me read it. I didn't, and I wish I hadn't had to read it now. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I love you enough to read Ethan from. I apparently love you enough to read The Scarlet Letter. I mean, you don't have to. Just read the spark notes. It'll save you a lot of time and energy. I mean, I... Out of all the books that I thought I would never have to come back to, that's pretty high on the list. Do you know how many times I've... Okay, so obviously we're reading The Scarlet Letter next. We've mentioned this probably like six times now. I had to read this in high school, and I was like, okay, good. I never have to read this damn book again. And then got into my sophomore year of college, and we were reading American Lit, and they were like, we're going to read The Scarlet Letter. And I just remember thinking, oh, dear God, what have I done to be punished to have to read Hawthorne again? Yeah, he's not a good author. He's not. And the funny thing is, he was such a shit talker about other authors. I was like, please, step aside, sir. I know you feel guilty because one of your relatives was in the witch trials, but you need to calm the fuck down. You really hate the thing. Oh! 
I don't um, think I have an author that I hate that much. <laughs> There's a reason when you're like, we're going to do pain month. And I was like, I already know. I know. Yeah. I, I mean, but I also like, I guess that could be an interesting debate. Cause you did the Oxford combo of like authorial intent. Cause I think we're on slightly different sides of the like authorial intent camp because I believe in it, but I also like, let's judge a book on merit because if I had to judge on author, I wouldn't read anything. Oh, that's fair. Everyone's terrible. I'm, I'm a small brown queer. I wouldn't read anyone if I had to judge on. I remember being like in 11th grade and deciding I wanted to be an author because I wanted to stay home all day and drink. I didn't even drink at that point. I didn't even drink till I was like in my 20s and be like, I'm just going to write all day long and I'm going to make all this money. And then you actually read the lives of authors and you're like, I was horrifically misinformed. I double majored so I don't have to be a teacher. Everybody, when I said I'm getting an English degree, they're like, Oh, are you gonna be a teacher? And I'm like, I don't like that. Was the entire reason I, I double majored because I didn't want to be a teacher. I'd probably be a really good, like, elementary school teacher. I mean, except for the swearing. I mean, I did teach Sunday school that one time. I'm gonna teach first grade. Oh no, oh no. I mean. Yeah, honestly, this book was so bad that I, like, I think I can understand why people don't like reading. I get it. It's, it's a bad book. It kind of, like, shuts you down. It really shuts you down. I mean, and to be fair, I was very excited that the San Antonio Public Library had the, um, like, audio version mm-hmm. pop up suddenly because somebody was using it when I went to look at it the first time. And I was like, oh, thank God, because I can't force myself through this. Because, like, I will say this, especially, like, being an AP student, I can't imagine reading this book. And, like, being, like, a regular student, maybe, like, being, like, ambivalent about literature and thinking, like, wow, this is really boring and dumb. Is there something wrong with me? Because I felt that a lot during, like, AP English was, like, is there something wrong with me because I'm not moved by, like, all quiet on the Western front? I liked that book. I didn't, it was fine, but, like, I wasn't moved. I didn't care. I also really am fascinated by that time period, so that's a whole other thing. I think I got lost at the part where a guy basically says he can't wait to get home so he can fuck for an entire week and then go to bed. Like, in that, like, opening prologue of, like, not needing trousers for a week. It's like, cool. Excellent. Like, I was pretty much done there, and then I stopped realizing I stopped paying attention. As you can tell, high school Amanda's priorities were not grand. Uh, but, like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I think there was, there was, I remember that feeling of, like, feeling broken almost for, like, not liking books like this. Because I... That's what you're taught, is that you should appreciate this, and you should like books like this. But this is just a boring and bad book. And then, a little over a decade later, we started a podcast to drink and talk about books yeah. in a way that we feel they should be discussed. Because because realistically, that's something that peeked behind my curtain, which sounds gross. Uh, it does sound gross. I mean, to be fair, I just did the Inside the Actor Studios guy's voice, so I wasn't gonna like... Know. But, like, that wasn't that always worried me about, like, books and literature was that I found so much of, like, classic lit so boring. I found so much of it so boring. And it might have just been, like, the lack of representation. I mean, that's a really fair point in what they make you read in high school or used to. Yeah, like, I just, I liked Madame Bovary. I liked that a lot. I liked Grendel. But, like, I don't know. Everything, I mean, I obviously liked Poe, obviously. But, like, everything else just felt, like, so stuffy, old, and white. And, like, 
And just, like, overtly racist, too. And that's one of the reasons that I, like, will throw in the history of the authors, because it wasn't until college when my teachers, like, sat down and taught us about, like, the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, and the professor was just incredible, and she's like, okay, I'm going to tell you all the weird shit that Swinburne did, and I was like, no one ever told me this! We're going to go see pre-Raphaelite stuff. I want to go see it so bad. There's an exhibit at, which museum is it? The Sama, the Santa Museum of Art. Um, I was going to say, I don't think it's the witty, but... It is not the witty. We have some really cool libraries, or not libraries, we have those two, but museums in San Antonio. We have one museum that I like a lot, one that I am ambivalent about, and one that has a cool archive room. Which one is the cool archive room? The witty. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. Ask them uh, to go see the collections, the side collections room, and you can see, like, gems and, like, weird things. There's also a ghost. Well, obviously. Which makes me really happy. But yeah, like, I don't know. This, this book almost made me hate reading. This in a separate piece. Well, I'm glad that it didn't put you off reading entirely. No, I just started writing a lot of fanfiction back then. I mean, same. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like that that's how we found our niche. Anyway! I mean, realistically, like, I think... Well, who, who said that quote of, like, to be a great writer, you have to be a great reader? What asshole said that? I don't know. Some asshole said that. Please, um, please scream at us with the information at some point. Don't scream at me. I'm a little drunk. <laughs> I'll probably cry. Uh, but, like, yes, I think you need to be able to appreciate the classics, but also know when they're not made for you. Like, especially, like, as a person of color. These aren't made for you. I'm sorry. Like, these books are not made for me. Like, when I read, like, Huckleberry Finn and stuff like that, like, it's just an old racist white man yelling at me. And this is why we do things like Toni Morrison Month. Yeah. Where we, like, bring in representation. Mm-hmm. Because I think, like, that's a huge factor of, like, critical reading that's frustrating, but also just, like, reading classical literature. Uh, so, like, I guess if we do have any younger listeners listening, don't get discouraged if you don't hate this shit. Just figure out why. Like, so my whole moniker for a fangirl nation is the Prince of Unpopular Opinions. And that's never been just hatred for hatred's sake. It's, I don't like this thing, and here's a thousand words why I don't like it. Right. As I'm sure Tori has read. And it's it's one of those things where uh, that was kind of the whole thing is you can dislike this mm-hmm. and I'm fine with you disliking it, mm-hmm. but why don't you like it? Right. What is it about it that bothers you? And the funny thing is, as an adult now, reading other people's work and finding out why they don't like something, mm-hmm. there's usually some pretty valid points. There's right. also usually some like history that, you know, isn't necessarily publicized. Right. Right. Like. I mean, if you if you are one of our all of like five younger listeners and like you're still struggling through this, don't feel bad because I mean we're I'm almost thirty and you are over thirty, and we'll be thirty five in December. I will be thirty next year. Like I still hate this book. It's been it's been fifteen years, and I hate this book, the very same that I did reading this for freshman English. It's the same level of hatred. If anything, it might be more so because now I know Edith Wharton was a rotted bitch of a woman. I just, I tried. That's why I put the thing in about World War One because I was like trying to I find don't one care. thing I liked about her. I, I don't, I... Ugh. Well, even the way they phrased it in the documentary, it was like, oh, like she had a bunch of rich friends who basically helped her do it for like, her. I, I don't, I don't care about that. I don't care that she helped people. She was, she was not a nice lady and she probably would have said something racist at me. 
Yeah, that's fair. Like, I don't, it doesn't matter. I mean, you even get side glances from, like, catfish plantation ghosts. I sure did. I absolutely did. I shouldn't have been mad dogged by the undead. And cat called everywhere we go. That's fair. I um, thought I was going to have to defend Amanda's honor, and then Amanda goes, I didn't even hear them say that. I didn't hear or see anything. I was very focused on the donuts we had. Hey, evidently, when that guy was going to buy us donuts, I would not have gotten within five feet of him, if possible. This is accurate. Austin is a hell of a drug. Yeah. What are we doing there? Uh, oddity show. Uh, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Why were we randomly in Austin? <laughs> I mean... I want to go to the Driscoll Hotel and see uh, Maximilian's Mirrors, but... No, thank you. Okay, you can find us on social media uh, if you want to see more of our random rants. At Unfortunately Required Reading on Facebook. Yep. Unfortunately RR on Twitter. Woo! Unfortunately Required on Instagram, where I put a bunch of pictures of our food. Yes. And UnfortunatelyRequiredReading.com, which I just had to read the domain name. Hooray! It's it's been a year. Yeah, it's been a year. Oh my god. If you'd like to suggest a book for the podcast, yes. have a funny story mm-hmm. about literature, or just want to say hey, we're at unfortunately required reading at gmail.com. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to continuing a pain month. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. And I think it's funny you're looking forward to continuing pain month. I'm not looking forward to it in the sense of uh, I want to read the Scarlet Letter because I don't. But. I do think that it'll be an elucidating conversation. I also am excited that I probably get to watch the movie Easy A again. Love Emma Stone, I don't care. You would. You would. We'll we'll go into that and talk about bisexuality, probably. Thank you so much for listening to us. Now, for the love of God, go read a book. A better book than this one.